This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mattress Firm. Do you get the quality sleep you need? Mattress Firm will find you the right bed for your best rest with their wide selection of quality mattresses at every price. Get matched at Mattress Firm's Memorial Day sale. Sleep at night. Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbong. Immigrant dads loom large over the two books we've got for you today. And they're both hard, difficult, and sometimes straight-up violent men. And growing up with that over you, I mean, it can't help but shape your idea of what it means to be a man in this country. In a bit, we'll hear from journalist Prachi Gupta, whose memoir examines how these ideas of masculinity eventually led to her brother's death. But first, Kashayar J. Kabushani's novel, I Will Greet the Sun Again, follows these three brothers, whose dad eventually just picks them up and brings them back to their home country of Iran. And he talked to here and now's Deepa Fernandez about finding room for some empathy for the father figure in his book. This message comes from NPR sponsor Noom. Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, helps you build new habits for a healthier lifestyle. Check out The Noom Kitchen for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I I just started doing research. uh, But the truth is, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. A beautiful debut novel illuminates lives that are often unseen. Kashayar J. Kabushani's I Will Greet the Sun Again introduces us to Kay, a young Iranian-American coming of age in Los Angeles. Kay and his two brothers try to be all American boys while their father wants to impose Iranian traditions. Their mother is too busy working to give much support, and all of them will soon experience a major disruption in their lives. The Guardian called I Will Greet the Sun Again tender and gut-wrenching. We agree. And Kashayar J. Kabushani joins us now. Welcome, Kash. Thank you, Deepa, for having me. So when we meet your main character, Kay, he's an Iranian-American boy living in Los Angeles. Now, as a child, he's suddenly uprooted to then live in Iran, though he eventually does come back to the U.S. And in reading your biography, it says you were born in Van Nuys, there in L.A., and you spent some time in Iran as a child before returning to Los Angeles. So I have to ask you, how much of Kay is you? I pulled a lot of the experiences from my biography, as you pointed to. But what I've been telling loved ones is I feel he's so much cooler than I was, Mm. so much more involved and evolved. And so definitely share a lot of similar experiences, but very much separate and different from who I was and who I am. Mm. So, Kash, why did you decide to fictionalize this story as opposed to, say, writing a memoir? Fictionalizing it and, and writing a novel allowed me to reimagine and rewrite um, the experiences that I suppose I wish I would have had the chance to have. And one specific example of that is um, when my brothers and I did return, our father returned with us, uh, whereas in the novel... Um, the father character remains in Iran. And I point to that example because it allowed for Kay 
in the novel to explore parts of himself, particularly his sexuality, that I think otherwise he wouldn't have been able to living under the, yeah, within the shadow of his father. And we do want to talk about the father in the novel, the mother in the novel, Kay struggles with sexuality, but I want to jump in with the brothers because these three boys, all of them, you know, they're struggling their way through adolescence, through school. And it made me reflect because you grew up in LA and the schools your characters attend don't seem bad, but they don't seem great. The brainy middle brother who excels, you know, then he loses motivation. What were the schools like that you attended? The school system, especially the public school system, um, they did and do have the resources to allow for a student to thrive. But I, I find in my experience, there has to be a lot of structure and support coming from the home. And in the novel, the boys don't have that. And and so I think because there are so many students in the LA public school system, it's easy to as we would say, fall between the cracks or get lost. Mm. And yeah, that was that was my experience with it. It's a uh, it's it's amazing. A lot of the schools, public schools, especially the high schools, the student body size of some of, of, of private colleges that we have in the States. Yeah. You know, but you might be hailed coming out of that LA public school system as, you know, this huge success. Look at you, you've published this great novel, but yet you fell through the cracks. Yeah, hearing you say that gets me gets me so emotional because I, I think not just of myself, but I spend a lot of time thinking about my friends, my peers, loved ones, relationships where there was a desire to thrive or or reach for success and, and follow the things that we were passionate about. But with a set of circumstances that a lot of people in, in certain communities in, in Los Angeles are dealing with, it feels nearly impossible and so on one hand as you say there's this you know incredible opportunity i had to go to graduate school in new york and then go through this book process and yet that doesn't erase or take away the actual lived experience of what it was like being in those school systems and and, and feeling incredibly lost and disheartened about what what the future would look like i want to go a little more into your book and and one of the reasons why the boys didn't have such great support at home was because their mother was working these incredibly long hours. Tell me about what Kay's mother had to overcome in the book. She's dealing with a a crumbling marriage and uh, a very abusive and complicated and problematic husband is uh, someone that doesn't speak English as, as her native language and so has to learn that and put herself through all the steps and challenges that come with working as a nurse and furthering her education. And then on top of all that, she's someone that's lived through the Iranian revolution. She's somebody that's lived through the Iraq and the Iran war. I mean, even as I'm talking about this, I, I just start trembling thinking about how much one person can contend with to then be put into a situation where She's got three boys to raise in a foreign land and, you know, trying to make ends meet. I want to jump to the father because he's a really intense character and I didn't particularly warm to him throughout the book at all. He he seemed very authoritarian. But after what happens to Kay in Iran, 
Now, I don't want to give anything away, but it was kind of unforgivable to me. Yet I felt like maybe the rest of the characters in the book weren't judging the father as harshly as I was. And and I wonder if, should we have some empathy for him? I would think so. I mean, that's certainly as as the writer, I, I felt when I imagined the way Kay viewed his father, because as you pointed to, there's this horrifying incident and, and really just a collection of them that sort of accumulate. But there's this want for fatherhood and closeness. And again, I think similar to the mother character, I I often ask myself as I was writing this, like, what happened to the father? What is it that leads a person to make these choices? These are the kinds of things that animated, I think, the empathy that I, as a writer, felt for him, but also the rage, you know, and, and mm. disgust, quite frankly, at some of the choices that he makes. So one of the other big parts of this book is Kay's struggle. I mean, I guess he has romantic feelings for his best friend, Johnny, but at the same time, his brothers are putting pressure on him to be with a girl. And I'm just wondering if you can talk about his struggle with queerness and how that's viewed in the Iranian-American community. And was that a part of your life? I'm so glad you asked that because, you know, in 2023, we've come such a long way about being out. But within the Iranian community, it was such a, it was just unthinkable, even within LA, to A, announce those desires and B, to act on them. And I still marvel that an Iranian boy is able to express those things on the page. I, I think it's so remarkable and courageous. Yeah. I feel like your book really humanized rambunctious young boys who, you know, you may see out in the street, you may see on the subway or or roaming around and, and have judgment about them, yet it so intimately brought us into their lives and their struggles. And I'm wondering if you experienced growing up kind of society in general judging you because of stereotypes of how you and, and other youngsters like you rolled? Oh, that's so interesting. It's something I think about so often, which is like, I remember even as a young person, I would see reflected back to me from teachers, from police officers, from other adults in the community. I would see how we were being perceived. And even as a young person, I remember thinking to myself, who we are inside is very different from how we're being perceived and I know we're behaving in these problematic ways, but that's not really who we are. Like, I remember specifically thinking that. And today, as you say, when I see youngsters on the subway, on the street, I try to afford them that same dignity where even if there's misbehaving happening, I, I try to just really remember deep down there's a beating heart who's wanting belonging. Kashayar Kabushani's book is I Will Greet the Sun Again. Kash, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. 
Alright, this next interview is a pretty heavy one. It's with Prachi Gupta, who's got a new memoir out called They Called Us Exceptional and Other Lies That Raised Us. And in it, she talks about her brother's death, his anger at women, and how that anger was fostered by their father. She talks to NPR's Leila Fadl about how she eventually had to pull herself away from her own family as a way of self-preservation. The writer, Prachi Gupta, comes from a family that appears a certain way from the outside. Many people, including within my own family, saw us as this picture-perfect Indian-American family. A father who's a doctor, my brother and I were very high-achieving. We graduated college with prestigious job offers. We really embodied the American dream. But at the very moment that we settled into that dream when I thought that we would all sort of be happy, live happily ever after, our lives really began to unravel. And she's telling how, in her new book, they called us exceptional and other lies that raised us. She says her dad taught her from an early age to project a certain image. It would be a lifestyle that her and her brother constantly chased, her brother going so far as to seek cosmetic surgery to lengthen his legs, a surgery that would ultimately kill him. He was 5'7", and he believed that if he had been 5'9", or 5'10", 5'9", is the average height for an American male, that if he had been taller, he would have been treated with more respect. Hmm. And I wanted to understand how this idea came to him and what those two or three inches of height meant to him emotionally to drive him to do something so painful and so destructive. And that really uncovered this exploration of the intersections of racism and patriarchy and mental health and how these systems affect, you know, affected his perception of himself as a brown man in America. The book is a letter to your mother. Every page is written to her. Tell me why and what you're trying to say to her. So after my brother Yash died, um, I was thinking about mortality a lot. And I was thinking about how I'm the only remaining child left. And the thing that I wanted most in the world was to connect with my parents, and specifically my mom. You know, I see a lot of myself in her. And my relationship with my mom was really loving. My best memories are, you know, of childhood, of us just, like, playing and singing and... I wanted to reach out to her, but in real life, I couldn't do that because there were so many things that stood in the way of us being able to talk honestly with each other. One of them being the ability to acknowledge my dad's role in our relationship, seeing how my dad treated her, and then knowing that I was next in line for that treatment. Describe some of the things that you watched in the dynamic between your dad and your mom that stuck with you when you talk about I was in line for that treatment? There's a moment where my dad throws my mom out of the car because she opens up a map too slowly and isn't reading the directions fast enough or clearly enough. Hmm. And in that moment, I didn't know if I was going to see her again. And then he picks her up, and then we just had to pretend like it had never happened, and we never talked about it again. And... I think for the sake of maintaining the family unit, there was this pressure on me to put up with it, to accept it, and to just forgive and forget. 
You write about the control your father had or the control he needed that was ultimately passed on to your brother a little bit. And in some ways there was a an anger towards women that he and your brother had when they didn't fulfill that perfect picture of what a man is supposed to be, right? Yeah. So they took a very different path than you took with the pain that they had inherited. What I saw with my dad and my brother was how racism really shaped their views on women as well. Like, especially like Asian men, South Asian men, they're put into boxes in white America about who they can be and who they can't be. And we all are. And one of the ways that manifests is racially, it's this demasculization, this this feminization. So one of the ways to take back power when that happens is to then assert it over women in your life. And I think that, you know, that's not a rule for everybody, but I think that that's how these systems are set up. And if we're not careful, we can see those dynamics play out. And that's what happened in my family. And you were estranged from your brother because you identified as a feminist, right? He took offense to that. He did. And, you know, I think there was so much justified anger on both sides, but we personalized it so much. And I think that there were so many misunderstandings and miscommunications about, like, what feminism is and isn't. And also there was no accountability in our household for the dysfunction that we saw. And I think, you know, when we don't hold people accountable for their actions, we as individuals end up taking on that shame and the responsibility for their actions. So we blame ourselves You know, I think accountability, that enables repair and that builds intimacy. But escaping it and and creating these scapegoats, at first it can feel more comfortable to blame other people for these problems. But ultimately it breeds dysfunction and denial and keeps us sitting in that pain. Mm, And that's what happened with your family? Absolutely, yeah. Ultimately, you chose to walk away from that relationship with your dad and your mom because you couldn't continue in that cycle? I tried so hard to be the daughter and the woman that my culture and that my society, I think, expected me to be and wanted me to be. But what I discovered was that it was never good enough. I could never be that way. I would have to always contort myself to reach some abstract, hypothetical idea of perfection that just didn't exist. Mm. And I was breaking myself in the process. So choosing myself wasn't really this rebellious act of reclamation. It was this desperate act of self-preservation. In many ways, I lost everything that I loved and cared about. And I have almost like nothing left to lose, which is part of why I'm doing this. And I want to warn other people about what can happen when we buy into the American dream uncritically, about what happens when we prioritize success, outward markers of achievement, instead of our internal peace. Prachi Gupta, her memoir, is They Called Us Exceptional and Other Lies That Raised Us. Thank you so much for this conversation, Prachi. Thank you. Thank you so much. And that's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. Let us know what you think. You can write to us at bookoftheday at npr.org. I'm Andrew Limbong. The podcast is produced by Isabella Gomez-Sarmiento and edited by Megan Sullivan. Our founding editor is Petra Mayer. The show elements for this week were produced and edited by Thomas Danielian, Gabe Bullard, Samantha Balaban, Melissa Gray, Megan Lim, Courtney Dorning, Erica Ryan, Justine Kennan, Todd Munt, Emiko Tamagawa, Rina Advani, and Ziad Butch. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks for listening.
This message comes from NPR sponsor Capital One. With the Spark Cash Plus card, you earn unlimited 2% cash back on every purchase for your business. Find out more at CapitalOne.com slash Spark Cash Plus. Terms and conditions apply.